Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 42, with the title, Being a Woman in a Man's World. I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Mandy Hickson. Mandy is a former Royal Air Force Tornado GR4 pilot, now a keynote speaker and author of the best-selling book, An Officer, Not a Gentleman. And when I asked Mandy to describe her superpower, she said authenticity. Hello, Mandy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joanne. What an absolute pleasure it is to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me in. Yes, we've talked about it for a couple of months now. And finally, finally, the, the ducks are in a row. We're, we're oh, no. Yeah, we're all seated to have it last week. And then my son suddenly got a cancellation for his driving test, didn't he? Which oh, I would like yeah. to say, he passed. So yeah. we can relax in our house now. <laughs> That's an achievement because I hear that driving test waiting lists are around almost a year in some cases. Oh, it's hideous. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had failed a couple of times before because it's just been such a stagnated and awful sort of like training for them for the whole year. Uh, and we had one booked in in September and then he literally got a cancellation because I was like, it was like a quick draw on this app where uh, cancellations come up. And it's like the fastest finger first. Well, I tell you what, I would be all over who wants to be a millionaire. I got it nailed within seconds. <laughs> <laughs> that was superb, lucky. Superb. Yeah. And he passed. That's the best thing. So yeah, was, exactly. Yeah. So you've you've spent a whole career being a woman in a man's world. What what's that like? Um, it's it's fascinating. So I joined the uh, Royal Air Force when I was twenty one, back in nineteen ninety four. Which gosh, it makes me feel like it was eons ago. Especially when I speak to some of the younger generation, and they go, oh, "I wasn't born then." I'm thinking, "Oh, really?" Um, and yeah, I was the second woman to fly the Tornado GR four on the front line. So I sort of came through in that very first tranche of women that were allowed to fly fast jets. And yeah, it was interesting. I I, I Never really massively struggled with that sort of being a woman in a man's world, particularly in training, because I think the guys that I was going through were a band of brothers. Uh, they were my best friends. And, you know, I didn't feel that I sort of stuck out, even though realistically looking back, I did stick out because I'm six foot tall and I've got a really, really loud laugh. So regardless of gender, you know, I stuck out anyway. Um, but when I got to the squadron, I did start to notice it more probably because they'd, they'd never had a woman um, flying as a pilot on that squadron. And so, of course, there's going to be big differences there. Well, I mean, I, I joined the Royal Air Force actually in 1981. Oh, really? And I was, I trained as a communications um, engineer. Right. So I worked on radar and radio and I, I probably actually trained on uh, PTR 1751, which is probably the radio radio you had in your tornado. Wow. I used to repair those. Um, And then lastly, I worked for Plessy Avionics, who manufactured those. And I used to service the test equipment in some of the third-line hangars that used to support tornadoes. So, yeah, I'm 
Never got much closer than watched them taking off, lift off the, from the runway, which is an impressive sight. When they put the afterburners on, just punch their way out. It's well, like absolutely what? incredible. There's nothing quite like that feeling, actually. And, you know, people often sort of said, oh, what was it like that first trip? And that first trip is literally seared into the memory bank of just lighting the burners because you've done lots of practicing in the simulator. And then when you do it for real, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm used to the environment because I've been in the simulator, so I know where all the switches are. And then you put these throttles forward and you click them into burner and it's that thrust. I mean, I think it's about 2G force of lateral acceleration. I think the closest I'd ever describe it as is um, there's a roller coaster at um, Thorpe Park and I can't remember what it's called now. Stealth. And it literally just does a wing over. That's it. The ride lasts for, I think it's seven seconds. And people queue up for two hours. And you're thinking, why? Well, the reason is because it's as close as you'll ever get to taking off in a fast jet, really. Wow. Wow. Well, I remember back in so I was I was talking about the early eighties, and it there was still the male air force and the, and the women's royal air force the, the WAFs yeah. and it was still separated. There were women weren't allowed to go on the front line. They weren't allowed to fight. They weren't allowed to go on 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 ships in the navy. It was a very different world back in those eighties and probably. You just got came in just after that that site yeah, changed. I don't know when it actually changed. To be honest, Joanne, I'm not sure what the date was when actually it went from being the WRAF to oh. the, the RAF as a whole. Actually, but you know, I'm really proud in some ways of the well of all the services. But you know, the RAF was the first of all the three services to uh, have full inclusivity for you know genders on on every single role. So every role was opened up to women um, and. And yeah, and I just feel it's it's such a different place to work from probably what you experienced, certainly in the 1980s and, and actually what I experienced as well. I did see that changing throughout my time. And I mean, one of my really close friends is um, is gay. And when he joined the Air Force at the same time as me, it was illegal. He actually had to say in his interview, they said, are you gay? And he would absolutely categorically, no, I'm not, because he was desperate to be a fast jet pilot. Mm. And as he was saying it, he's thinking, I absolutely categorically am. And I'm going to have to basically have this awful world where I'm living closeted. I can't be true to my own identity. And the stress that brings to the workplace Mm. is enormous. Well, in fact, your whole life is enormous, isn't it? I completely. I mean, so I was the early 80s and I certainly wouldn't be able to, have been trans in those days. I certainly would have been been open about that. And it wasn't a kind of passive, if you're gay, you're in trouble. It was kind of an active rooting out of people who were gay, wasn't it? It it was very proactive and the Special Investigation Bureau would come down and they'd grill you and it wasn't – so it wasn't like being a bit ostracised. You were literally were – You could be arrested. I mean, they didn't. I don't think they actually. They would definitely kick you out, and you potentially could lose your pension rights and things like that. Um, but it even had that if you went to the doctor with an issue, that they had the rights to out you. You know, this is you know they've taken this oath to not share any any of the things that they hear, and of course they they could do it as well. So you know, it was it was. I mean, it was horrific when you think about that. I know that um, there's a lady Caroline who I, I don't know if you've come across her on, and she was the, one of the first um, women that transitioned in the air force. And so Caroline Lawson. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, must have gone through you know you know an incredibly challenging time, um, and you mm. know. I think it's fantastic. So um, I don't know. Have you interviewed her at all? 
I haven't. No, she's in she's in America at the moment, I believe. Or she's oh. yeah, I'm not sure what she's doing, but yeah, I see some of her posts on Facebook, and I'm in touch with a few people in the Marines, a few people in the Army, people yeah. who are ex uh, MT drivers and things like that. So yeah, I'm I'm in touch with a few people who are in the services now, yeah. and who probably went through that early stage of their career being closeted, yeah, um, as as a trans person, which yeah is a, is a is a real struggle, and I can imagine that. That freedom of civic life again uh, allows you to yeah. you know, burst out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I know that when I used to speak to my my friend, and he would say his biggest fear was being outed. You know, yeah. some people's fear is spiders. Yeah, but being outed, and and because it was that feeling of loss of control. You know that you're doing something that you're passionate about, that you know you're good at, you're at the top of your game, and yet somebody could take that all away by choosing to to out you um and even when the rules change you know he didn't actively come out for about a year um just because he just didn't feel happy to do that yet and then culture started to change enormously and thank goodness he did and you know mm. he could, could be his true self um but um the, the stress that creates is enormous yeah i mean the culture as you say the culture change does take a while to permeate you can't just change the law change the rules change Queen's regulations and everything snaps into place. No, exactly. You've still got that old school thinking, haven't you? But that's the same in any organisation, isn't it? I mean, if you look at, say, uh, blame culture, you know, let's look at aviation as a whole. They have transitioned from a blame culture in the 1990s, whereby we never learned anything, to a really open learning culture now. But that does not happen overnight. You can't just write a policy, as you say, change the Queen's regulations and say, okay, everyone's going to be able to abide by these rules. Because ultimately, people have got preconceived ideas. They've got that's the way it always was. And it's only as you start to see new blood coming through, I think, and, and also that you start to see evidence of, for example, a woman in a man's world, she can do the job just as well as the men. Yes, it doesn't make any gender is irrelevant. And it really is. And it was only when you started to see that going through that people started to sort of change their mindset as well. Mm. So did you find that as, as an early woman in that environment that you were still coming across a very male-only environment in terms of bunks, barracks, oh, messes and things? Yeah, completely, Natalie. Um, I mean, when I used to go out to the Gulf, because I served on operation, well, three different operations out in Iraq, basically, um, we were all in a, um, this port cabin, basically, together with this awful air conditioning system. I won't even go through that. But I mean, we were all in there together. Again, that didn't massively bother me. There was one toilet at the end of each corridor, no male, no female. It was, you know, you've got 39 men and me, so you're not going to have a toilet to yourself. Again, didn't bother me when you're queuing for the showers. You're all standing in your towels waiting for the two showers, you know, and I've just got a towel wrapped around the top half and they've just got one around the bottom half, you know. And again, I'd just be standing having conversations with them. And I didn't, it didn't seem to bother me. The one thing that I did not like was um, purposeful, slightly vindictive actions and that is the thing I cannot tolerate so every time I went out to the gulf I was always given the room by the the we have a, like um, a pre-deployment group that go out there and it's a bit of a joke I mean the men had a lot of pornography on the walls fair enough everyone's choice is their own but they would always give the room with the most pornography on the walls 
to me, literally plastered. It was like wallpaper and the ceiling. And I'd walk in and go, oh, really? Again? And they did it three years running. And I would strip all the porn off the walls, put it all in a pile outside the door and yell, porn's up. You know, I mean, the first time I just thought, oh, gosh, that was unlucky that I got that room. Well, it wasn't unlucky that I got it the second and the third year. And the guy in the room next door, you know, who's sitting there in a room with no pornography on the walls, you know, and, and things like that annoyed me. And there was um, a few occasions with, you know, very sort of slightly underhand comments, a little bit of bullying started. And I'll be really honest, it, it, on my first tour out there, it really got to me because I'd worked so hard to achieve this goal, you know, five years of the most intensive flying training pretty much anywhere in the world. You get to fly on operations, you're out there, you're thinking I've made it. And then it's the most lonely world you can ever imagine because, you know, male and female conversation is really different, you know, and there was only so much football and politics I wanted to talk about, you know, and I'd be sort of craving female conversation. And we had, at the time it was before mobile phones, we had this one 20 minute phone call that you could use. You could split it up, but you know, it was like on a card and I would ring my boyfriend who I'm now married to my husband and I go, you have got three minutes. I need to speak to women for the rest of the time. I go, I'm fine. Everything okay with you? Good. Bye. And then I'll be straight on to just talk to me about some normal stuff, like just normal conversation. And I found that that was that probably hit me harder, bizarrely, than most things actually out there. Yeah, I can imagine. I remember my time in this sort of the field service sort of side was very, it was a very blokey, beery, rugby clubby type mentality all the time yeah lots of uh lots of male humor and male banter going on yeah. and how did you feel did you feel you fitted into that at the time or I, I was 16 17 18 19 sorts of years old um i had confusion in my head but it, it wasn't in those at that, that time of my life I, I guess i hadn't it didn't really bother me it was just i was i was already socialized into that environment yeah and you just get on with it i, I think one of the things of basic training is you it, it strips away your independent thinking. Some of it, isn't it? You just yeah. you get up, the the tannoy goes off. You jump out of bed. You get in the shower. You do everything. You make your bed up. You get on the parade ground, or you get on and do whatever you got to do. So you, there is not a time to think. You're, no, you're always being driven. Yeah, I think that is very fair thing to say. Actually, is that you sort of one did I did realize that at one point um, <clears throat> we were in America and we were on a big exercise and I was sort of wearing a dress and we were going out for dinner as a squadron and I'd made quite an effort. I mean, you and I earlier were just talking about makeup. I'd actually put some makeup on, which was like. Oh my goodness. I wasn't wearing the, the flying suit, the grow bag. And, um, one of the guys sort of, who's a French guy said, Oh, Mandy, you're looking beautiful. And the guy next to him went, slapped and went, you can't say that to Mandy. She's one of the boys. And he turned back with this sort of Gaelic shrug and went, Puh, you Brits, you have so much to learn about women, you know? Um, and it was a really lovely moment though, because it became in my own mind, probably quite a pivotal moment. I think up to that point, I hadn't realized just how much I had try to be one of the boys. And you mentioned a really, really poignant word right at the start, fitting in, belonging. There's two very different things on there. And I know that when we talk about things like, you know, diversity, inclusion, you know, diversity is what we have and inclusion is what we do with it, isn't it? Um, and, and I think up to that point, I had been trying desperately to fit in. I was being more blokey than I probably should have done. I was swearing so much more. Um, I was drinking a lot more than, you know, I would have d probably done normally in a different career. Um, 
And I was just sort of in that whole alpha male blokey environment. And when this guy said she's one of the boys, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I, I actually am trying too hard to be one of the boys. And I think it was in that point I realized that I had to actively make a decision not to be one of the boys, but to maintain who I was. I still wanted to be a woman, but just in a man's mm. world, you know, and I could do that, but it was going to take a little bit more strength of character to find that belonging rather than just fitting in. Mm. That's really interesting that you say that because when I went through the early stages of my own transition, I found mixing in, in all female groups, I found it really awkward to start with because yeah. the conversations, it wasn't just the conversation, it's the way pe- women talk to each other. It's so completely different and alien to the way men talk to each other. And it took me a long while to re-socialize myself into an environment where I could be one of the girls because yeah. I felt an outsider to start with. And I, I remember probably about a year or two in, using the word we as we women. And I felt really self-conscious about looking around. Is anyone going to call me out on this? Yeah. And and I felt so kind of relaxed afterwards because I suddenly accepted that I was part of we, not yeah. part of other. And that was a real, real, I, so I can only equate what you were saying is you, you always felt the outsider in, in the we, if you like. Yeah. And I think, when you're going through it, you don't really realize it so much. It's only when you start to leave that environment, and yours is a, a lot more recent than mine. So, I mean, mine was sort of, you know, 20 odd years ago now. And it's, I think, doing what I do now as a, as a speaker. And actually, when I wrote my book, it was it was very cathartic in many ways. And a lot of people say that, don't they, when they write books, that it becomes quite a cathartic experience because you're going through all of those memories and you're reliving that time. And yeah, I can only imagine, actually, because you're so right. Women's conversation is so different. And it's just, it's fascinating. And uh, I mean, I see it when, bizarrely, my husband, he really enjoys female conversation, probably more than male conversation. And if I'm going on a girl's night out, he always goes, can't I come? Because he really much prefers it. Because <laughs> he just said, you, women speak about so many more interesting things. And I think that is changing a bit more now. As men are realizing they don't have to be this alpha male character. They don't have to be this grrr, testosterone-filled individual. They can be themselves. And therefore, they can say, I hope more and more. And that's why I love it that you know, mental health is so high on the agenda these days because people are saying, actually, I'm feeling really low and it opens up their dialogue rather than everything right. Yeah, fine, mate. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's much more sort of frivolous, you know, not very deep conversation. Yeah, it's very superficial, isn't it? It's, it's I'm all right, you're all right, we're having a beer type stuff, isn't yeah, it? Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. seen the football recently. And it's just, you know, whereas <laughs> Craig always goes, oh, I love it. Women get straight in there and they get sort of like, you know, really into deep conversations much, much more quickly. Yeah, and even men talking about their children is much more functional, sort of, I took them to the rugby, I took them to here, and it was almost like the things you did with them, rather than how, how they're succeeding or how they're thriving, how they're growing and developing. It's, I love the fact that you're using all those positive words, whereas often when I'm described, I'm, I'm living with teens. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what a nightmare. Have they managed to not be excluded from school? You know, He actually finishes tomorrow, and all I'm just – thinking of is no more seeing the school's phone number coming up on my phone thinking what's he done this time oh my heart feel, heart drops every time <laughs> oh but my daughter is 
um, about, about 20, no, 30 in January. Oh, wow. She gets married in six weeks. Oh, it's good. Um, yeah, so, she did she get a booking okay? Yes, she she had to cancel last year, right? So they had to postpone it a year, and she's got a hold for a, a, a date next year, right? But fingers crossed. This is Plan A, and everything's going to happen in, in, oh. in five weeks' time. So it's looking good. So we're a, a white wedding or white wedding. Yes, white wedding. Yeah. She's got it all planned. She's got seventy guests in a, oh. a converted barn with all the drapes and the chair backs and beautiful. Yeah, oh, I'm. Beautiful. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be giving her away in a kind of a non-traditional way, oh, <laughs> so, which is fantastic. Oh. Yeah, yeah, no, that is great, isn't it? So, um, oh, yeah, I'm very proud. I'm, I'm really proud of her. She's she's an amazing independent. She's yeah, she's a self-made as anyone is self-made. She's built her own career. Uh, she's a she's a manager of an early years. Um, Play, well, not really a playgroup, early education establishment yeah. that take children from two two years upwards. So, and yeah, and she's she's so she's a manager, so she trains people, on boards people, fires people, <laughs> mentors, and looks after people, and deals with parents. So, yeah, she's she's a yeah, got it's her own career. That you learn and you realize very quickly it's all about the people, managing the people, isn't mm. it, rather than just the yeah. business. It is. And my son is uh, twenty five, so I'm well you- beyond. He's an IT consultant, so he. Oh. He, he he works for a big company, um, working almost exclusively remotely at the moment. It's, it's a remote only, so yeah, yeah. He, good stuff. So Thanks. yeah, we're, I'm well beyond hiding the homework, and uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've got all those memories of getting these phone calls, and uh, and we think we, we we think we put your child back on the rails and have this big conversation, this big expectation setting. And you think, right, we've, we've cracked it this time. And you just assume everything's smooth again. It's not, is it? No, never. My husband and I spent the whole time going, what have we done so wrong? But all I'm thinking, keep on thinking is they were both really nice before the teens, and I'm sure they'll both come back. And in fact, my older my older son, we're seeing, in fact, we're seeing signs of them both coming back. Now, I, you know, I'm, I do jest, but um, there have been challenging times especially in lockdown i think it i think it, everything was just put you know under a magnifying glass wasn't it of course you know suddenly you've got teenage boys that are designed to not want to be with their parents and here you are oh, going, anyone fancy a game of risk it's like why would we want to do that <laughs> I, I spent what four years away after school uh Joined the RAF and then came out and then came back to living with my parents. And that was the worst thing I ever did because we're not designed to fly and come back again. No, I know. And I think that was the worst. so many are struggling at the moment, isn't it? The sort of when they're boot, they call them the boomerang generation, isn't it? Where because it's just a nightmare with university fees to pay back and, you know, trying to save any money for a deposit and everything. It's really mm. tough, really tough for them. So going back to your time in the, in the RAF, I mean, you obviously held officer rank, so you, you automatically had authority over a number of people and automatically that respect comes with the rank, et cetera. But did you ever find that you were being maybe treated differently as a female officer? Did people not take you as seriously? Did the oh. ranks still recognize you as an officer at that time? I'll be honest. No, I didn't actually. I th- I was I think I was really quite lucky on that respect, to be honest, Joanne. That, um, you know, I think for myself, I, I think it, I know this is going to sound a bit funny. Height helps. I'm quite a larger than life character, and so you know, I think when you're six foot tall, you come across as being very very confident as well. That you almost command a level 
that's not sort of a you know if, if you're five foot tall and perhaps you're a lot quieter that's quite hard if you're then taking on an entire or talking to an entire group of men so I never really had a problem with that and I think when I got to the squadron you know I sort of we talked about authenticity being really important I've always been who I am what you see is what you get with me and you know it's been really nice actually recently because you know when I left the Air Force I started doing keynote speaking and um one of the, the best pieces of advice I ever got was this from this guy, um, Alan Chambers, and he was an Arctic explorer, ex-Royal Marine. Oh, great, great character. And I, I was talking to him and I said, how do I get into becoming a speaker? And he just said to me two words. And I was like, what? You know, thinking of like the names of agents, he went, be yourself. And I went, oh God, is there not more to it than that? And he goes, no, honestly, all people want is authenticity. And it's been one of the things that I've just kept in the back of my mind at all times is don't, when you're on the stage, don't pretend to be somebody you're not. Don't suddenly change your voice. Don't suddenly not be Mandy from Manchester. You know, just be who you are. And guess what? People love who you are because they can spot when people are faking it immediately. And the one thing I always get is, oh, my goodness, you're identical to how you are on a podcast. Or, oh, you're identical to how I, you are when I met you at this event. And it's, I think, just be who you are the whole way through. And, it, A, it takes the stress away, doesn't it? I mean, that must have been, you know, for yourself when you transitioned to suddenly be able to say, I can now be authentically who I am. Mm-hmm. That must have been a huge relief. It was, uh, but it also came with its own set of anxieties mm. because I, I knew I could stand on stage. I knew I, could, I used to do a lot of afternoon speaking. Because you, you were the round table, weren't you? I was, I was the national president of the yeah. round table. So I was used to wearing a black tie, going to blokey stag events, um, yeah, doing yeah, the afternoon speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So I was used to all that. So I knew I could speak. I knew I was, people told me I was entertaining and funny and witty and also engaging. So I kind of knew I could do it. But could I do it on stage in a dress? Yeah. Could I? Could I feel? Did I feel authentic, or was or, or was I pretending to be somebody else? And then it took me a long while to realise that this really was me, and I yeah. became comfortable. And it, I think in fact, I, I remember having a conversation with yourself probably four years yeah. ago. No, I remember at, it at a time just before I started speaking, and, and you probably told me to be authentic, be yourself. And I think a mutual friend, uh, Rachel Maunders, who oh, yeah, and I saw her, I saw her speak one day, and someone in the audience asked her how she got into to public speaking, and she flippantly replied, "Put it on your LinkedIn profile and go for it." And that's kind of what that's the advice I kind of took as well. I thought, well, put professional speaker on your LinkedIn profile yep. and just be it. Yeah, and that's that's how I uh, and I was in two minds at the time. I. Could I get on stage and address and speak? Will yeah. I be taken seriously? And also my voice. I was really self-conscious about my voice being quite deep, quite resonant, being yeah. in my chest. And I thought about voice coaching. I thought, if I take my voice away, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it for somebody else because this is my voice. I don't mind it. Okay, it gets annoying when I get misgendered on the phone a few times. But now I use it to my advantage because yeah. I can create that shock and awe value when I'm on stage. Yeah, I let the audience hang. I let the audience hang for three seconds before I speak, and yeah. they go, "Oh, where did that come from?" <laughs> I was expecting this female voice to come out of the microphone, and it was a, a boom. So. And it's, it's worth and that, it. I think it is. I love that power of um, the surprise. I mean, often when I'm speaking at big events, I'll say to the company, 
are you how how much are you going to advertise this? And they said, oh, we'll advertise. I said, how about you say we have got a fast jet pilot coming in to speak to us, but you don't give the name. They were they go. Oh, and then I will be queuing up, literally getting a coffee. Everyone will be like mulling around, and I was standing in, I'll be standing in a queue, and there'll be these two women perhaps talking, like there was on one occasion. <laughs> and I heard them going, Oh, got a fast jet pilot coming. Oh my God, they're always really fit, really fit, gorgeous blokes, you know. A, not always in my um, <laughs> my valued opinion, but there you go. Um, and I just thought, this is fascinating. And I love the fact that. If you don't say what gender you are, when you walk on the set, they say, welcome to the stage, Flight Lieutenant Mandy Hickson. Everyone goes, and you almost, I love, can make it my first question. Guys, girls, stand up. Who was expecting a man? And I say, please be honest. The whole audience just stand up. And I love that because you just think, we don't, I don't mean to do it. I do it all the time. You know, I was speaking at this, um, we were working on this big event and it was with an engineering company. And we'd been doing this, um, a bit like a Myers Briggs. It's, you know, it's called the Strength Development Index. And I was looking at all these profiles and they were all almost within a five pence piece. Everyone they had recruited were exactly the same profile, apart from one person that was so far right on extreme leadership and dominance and and I went oh I wonder what he's like and then it's a she and I thought oh Mandy you're the worst you know I can't believe you've done that but we do it and it's this unconscious bias isn't it and so it's a great way to be able to and it's not that you're catching people out of course it's not but it's it just reminds people that we are doing that that we do do it all Mm -hmm. the time um, back in the day when we used to be able to fly commercially, you know, it seems like a lifetime ago, I know. But back in the day when we could fly, I remember sitting next to a, a female sort of colleague in my network, and she's also a DNI professional. And we're sitting on the plane, just strapped ourselves in, and the pilot came over, and it was a female voice. And a few seconds passed, and this female colleague turned to me and said, I know I'm a DNI professional, but I now feel more nervous because we've got a female pilot. <laughs> Ah! I know, I know, but it's terrible. Isn't it? We still feel that this is still out there, and, and women aren't any any less biased against women than men are. No, it, no, because well, I tell you what. I mean, I was on a flight, and there was it was an all female flight deck, and they said, and the city captain, and it was a female, and they said, and my first officer is, is a female. I was like, yes, and then I was like, why are you like cheering so much? And it's because actually. EasyJet, Carolyn McCall, when she was the CEO of EasyJet, made it her mission to try to go from 7% female on the flight deck to 12%, and she didn't succeed. So there's a reason that we still assume it's going to be a man is because in 90% of the time it will be, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just that you're conditioned to do that. And and I think we're conditioned from such an early stage of our lives, aren't we? Um, and I'll never forget, I love this video. Uh, it was made by Inspiring the Future, which is a charity I do a lot of work with about, you know, trying to change um, the, or create role models for young, young children. And they went into a primary school, a fast jet pilot, a surgeon and a firefighter. And they asked all the children to draw a picture of these people and name them. And all of them named them a, a man's name. Then the three women went out, got dressed in all their kit, came in and they went, why are you dressed up like that? And they went, no, no, we are it. We are them. I am a surgeon. I am a firefighter. I am a fast jet pilot. And then they had a whole chat about it and it was really positive. And then my friend that was the, the uh, 
um, the fighter pilot left, one little girl said to her, when you go back, are you going to have to give your husband his uniform back? It was like, oh, my gosh, have we completely missed the whole point of this? That's how ingrained it is. Isn't it? It's that it, it doesn't matter that you've got someone that's showing you, you know. I mean, people people are still contacting me. I mean, the, the book has been wonderful for that, to be honest, Joanne, is because it's opened up a dialogue and, you know, I'm getting youngsters contacting me all the time on Instagram, which is quite frankly an unknown thing to me. So I'm having to work out how to use Instagram because I'm rubbish at that one. I can do Twitter and Facebook, but I was like, Instagram, this is a new thing, newfangled medium. Um, and they contact me on it all the time. And it's been really interesting because they're sort of, some people sort of saying, I'm going to careers advisors and they're going, oh, oh, I would have never thought that of that for as a woman's job. These are careers guidance people still saying those sorts of comments. I find it shocking. Is that why it's so difficult for the CEO of EasyJet to go from nine to 12? I mean, is that, is, yeah. is, do we still have this problem where, where young women, young girls are being socialized yeah. around the gendered expectations for them? Yeah, I think so. And I just think, um, I mean, I know that um, must have been about six years ago, I was asked, would I be the subject of a book? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to be. How exciting. And they did a primary school series and it was called Tara Bins Explores. I mean, I'm not sure it's quite a strange name. And it was about, it was basically, imagine Mr. Ben of our era as a little girl. She goes into a dressing up box and she puts on a, pirate, a pilot's uniform and she comes out and she goes on a, a mission. Uh, and it was basically, but it was, all of them were STEM related or, you know, like real typical male jobs. And they just said, we want to just start, you know, actually putting that gender stereotype to bed and actually having, you know, this little girl as the explorer that goes off and she does all these very male jobs. And, you know, I think that's, that's the age that we need to start getting them at. Mm. I agree. I, I, I almost I, I talked to a lot of people about having pre-parenting classes, not about you know, the, the, the big ball and the Lamar's classes and all this kind of like the keep. Fit, but it's about how to bring up your children with equal opportunities, equal expectations, and and not force gender onto your children. We almost need to train pre-parents on how they they can create these equal opportunities because so many parents bring that bias into their lives. I remember, uh, I remember talking to other parents where they, they're automatically steering their boys or their girls into different directions. But I, I do find that fascinating. And I think that opens a whole, I know that I can't remember who it was. I think it was the lovely twins and I can't remember what their names are. The two doctors um, on television. Oh, and yes. You know who I mean. Um, Zan and Zander and the other. Yes. Yeah. 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 And they, they had these babies and they basically put these babies and then they put slightly older children, like four, four and five-year-olds in to play with the babies. And two of the babies were dressed in pink and two were blue. And these little children instantly started giving the, the, girl, the girls, the pink ones, the, the, the dolls to play with. Well, actually, they'd swap the genders round. And it was fascinating that, you know, it was one of the the boys that was dressed in pink. Actually, he was very happy with the doll, but the other one kept on going straight back and crawling across to get to the cars. And it was just about this, even at the age of three and four, we're trying to get them to play with, you're not letting your children almost, even as four-year-olds and five-year-olds that were playing with them, they weren't letting them play with what they wanted to. They were trying to instill their stereotype onto a baby. Because of what it's dressed, a blue blue t shirt with a with a, a soldier on it, or a, a pink yeah. t shirt with a fair with a 
I know. A princess on it, yeah. It's, exactly, exactly. We do it. There you go. We do it all the time, yeah. But I mean, I've, I've certainly noticed in the last four years, I, I, I hang around more in female-only groups, or most of my, my day-to-day contacts tend to be female. And I'm so much more enlightened as to the breadth of, of women out there doing all these different roles, whereas maybe in my previous life, I was so blinkered to think it was only a man's world. And now I, I the way I look at it now is it's actually a, a very female world out there. Yeah. Uh, but the struggle is being is finding that acceptance or finding that door that could be opened. It's they say living in the shoes, don't they? And say until you've lived in the shoes, you've never experienced it. Have you read the book? Um I should get a blooming commission from this man, Matthew Saeed's book, uh, Rebel Ideas. It's a really good I've not read it, no, but he's well, also he got Black Box Thinking as well, hasn't he? Yeah, he wrote That's the other book he does. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed. And then he's written Rebel Ideas. It's all about cognitive diversity. Uh, and, and it's how much we focused on cultural and gender and all the different diversities, but actually having cognitive diversity about people that think differently. And he just gave lots and lots of different examples where people haven't lived in the shoes of somebody else. You can never imagine what it's like. So... Even if, for example, if you're in a wheelchair because you are injured and you finally start to try to make a tube journey and you realize only then that actually there's only a certain amount of distance you can get on the tube because some stations you just can't access. And yet you would never have known that had you not lived as that person. And I think you saying that, you know, you've. When you're a man, you're living in a certain world. And, you know, my husband spends the whole time saying, why is it all about women? You know, what about male equality? And I'm like, because actually it's been all about men for so many years. And actually, if you look at just how far women have changed the dialogue over the last 20, 30 years, momentum is on our side, but the males have not changed theirs. So it's all about the the rate of change is what we're seeing as opposed to where we're at. I think. Uh, yeah, I always go cast my mind back to when women got the vote. Okay, I can't. I wasn't there. Obviously, I can't cast my own mind that far. But the narrative around it, and if, if you read the the narrative at the time, it was men allowed women to vote. Yes, and that sounds really insulting. But at the time, men were the only people who could vote. Men were the only people in Parliament. Men were the only people in in the upper class who had any say. Therefore, you have to, it had to be the priv- people with privilege that opened the door and allow women to vote. And I often say this to people that it, when we're trying to get gender equality, it's not women talking about gender equality. It's when men talk about gender equality. We need the people who hold the power, who hold the privilege, whether that's straight people, whether that's white people, whether that's men, whoever that privilege is, to open the door. Otherwise, it becomes we become the, the kind of the, the marauding mob with pitchforks outside trying to storm the castle and be let in. Of course, all they do then is pour oil in your head and put the drawbridge up. So we have to approach the castle in a more open dialogue and engage with the people of privilege to allow us into the castle. And that's the challenge we have at the moment. It's, it's creating a situation where men, white men, don't feel threatened by diversity, by inclusion, because they don't feel it's for them. And that, that's the real challenge I'm seeing at the moment is men are getting scared because they're being minoritized effectively. That's yeah. how they feel. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, because one of the questions I always get asked when I do my speeches is, uh, can, a, can, you, can a woman have it all? And I say, well, what, hey, what is all? And the answer is 
Probably not, by the way. Uh, you can't, I don't think. There will be... I love... Um, who was it? Oh, Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And she talks about life not being this ladder, but it being a jungle gym. And I think it's so... She said, that grow some strong nails and hands to cling onto the cargo net, you know, at certain times. But it's a lovely analogy that we're not just going up, but... My big point is, is that we're not going to, like you say, we're not going to see true change until the men want it to. So you're not going to get equal, like, well, this was pre-COVID times, you know, you say, oh, we want flexible working until the men want the flexible working, until the men want those same parental rights and as maternity, as, you know, maternity leave. Until we see that, then you don't get change because they were the, still in that position of a majority who are therefore making the decisions. And, and I love the fact we are seeing, I mean, some incredibly powerful women. And over the last year, when you look at how many more female leaders there are on the world stage, I mean, oh, I just love it. You know, you just, it's been happening quietly and subtly in mm. lockdown and we've emerged and it's like, oh yes, there's been a quiet revolt you know, taking on the world. And I'm not even a, a huge women's, you know, liberal or anything like that. I wouldn't particularly consider myself a feminist um, until I feel that there is a misalignment, until I feel that actually something is not right. And then I do feel quite indignant about it. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I completely agree. And I love the way you said it's about this jungle gym because if we're not careful, it's a bit like the Mary Porter's book, Work Like a Woman Rather Than Working Like a Man. Can women have it all? Well, they can have all that they want. Yeah, exactly. They don't necessarily want the same things. Yeah. What is success for me now is nothing like success for me 20 years ago. What I want today, and some of that comes through maturity, age, the fact that my children have moved on. You want different things as you grow older anyway, and some of it's also come from my, my realignment of my gender. I, just, I, I have a different view of what is, is important and necessary. It's more, it's more sufficient-based rather than acquisition-based. Have I got enough for me, for now, for us? Yeah. Can we survive? Are we happy? Happiness is more important than stuff. Okay, it's age, but also, yeah, I think women can have all they want. Yeah. And I think it's also, don't you think, though, John, it's about accepting as to where you are. So, you mentioned Rachel Maunter earlier. So Rachel is a is a really good friend of mine. And we when I left the Air Force, I was speaking at an event with her. And we got so excited because we therefore decided to set up a company and it was called Inspiring Women for Work. It was all about it wasn't it wasn't meant to be just a particularly just about women getting back to work, but we were just really aware that when you've been out of work for some time, be it through you know, maternity or illness or a carer or whatever it is, when you're going back, you've lost that level of confidence and confidence is like a muscle and we need just to exercise it. And so we set about launching this business. And one of the things we got all these life coaches to come along, all these women came up to the course. And then we, we also did sort of like you know, potential careers, things that might work. One of the big takeaways for me is about accepting that where you want to be at your time of life is not always where you did want to be in the past. So it could be working in Tesco's is where you want to be. And that is fine. It's getting your head around that just because at one point you wanted to be CEO of, you know, a, a blue chip company, it doesn't mean that that's what you want now. And I think for myself, when I was in the Air Force, you know, it was all about the flying. It was about, you know, being the best version I could be. And then once I had children, 
I was then mum and I had to be a mum as well. You know, I didn't have grandparents living locally. I, you know, I very much had to make that situation work. My husband was in the airlines, you know, he was away all the time and I couldn't just be going back to the front line and flying in Afghanistan going, well, my career is everything. Oh, by the way, who's looking after your two boys? Well, quite frankly, somebody will. You know, it's that whole levels of responsibility. And I had to change really my own. And I, I, I talk about choosing your flight path because we constantly change our flight path as we're going through life. So true. I, I, I'm not saying every man, but many men have the, have the luxury of being able to say, someone will look after the children. I don't have to. It's almost like the default position is if a man isn't going to look after the children, that's okay. But the buck stops often with the mother. And again, there are plenty of relationships where that's not the case. And I'm not saying every case, but there are so many opportunities where men have the opportunity to say, I can walk out and I can go and do my career. And the buck stops with my wife, my partner, whoever it may be. And that does, as you say, alters people's flight paths, alters people's ambitions in life as well. Because actually, I would, I would probably guess that seeing your children develop and grow was actually more important to you than elements of your career. You know, flying yeah. a fast jet is one thing, but seeing children learn to read, write and grow is yeah, a completely different experience, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and I think it was interesting, really, because then when I left the Air, um, the air Force, I had done all my training to become an airline pilot, and I'd assumed I would go into that because that's what everyone does who has been a pilot in the Air Force, 99% become airline pilots. And I thought, well, that's what I would do. And it was only through a very fortuitous conversation, I'll be honest, rather drunkenly at a dinner party, when I was sharing a story about being shot at by a surface to air missile in Iraq, as you do, as a light party moment, you know, when the conversation had hit a lull, um, I slipped it in. And um, there was someone at the table who said, oh my goodness, have you ever thought about becoming a speaker? And I said, what is a speaker? Because in the Air Force, we didn't exactly have a lot of motivational speakers. And also, this was 10 years ago, and I don't think it was seen as quite a, as such a big thing. Well, I certainly knew nothing about it. And they gave me an opportunity to speak at an event, and I just spoke for 20 minutes, all, all on cue cards. And it was the crappiest speech I've ever delivered in my life, because I was reading these cue cards about my own life. I mean... Really? Do you not know it? Um, and actually, from that moment, I've never had a cue card since and never read from a script um, ever. My husband always goes, oh, how do you not do that? And I go, oh, I'll just write a bullet. And I have literally four bullets on my hand and that'll be it. You know, that'll be the speech. And But going back to Rachel's point of, um, you know, do you put it out there? How do you become a speaker? Basically, somebody said to me after that, and what do you do? I said, I'm a keynote speaker. I delivered one 20 minute speech and I started saying, I am a speaker. And it was, a, it was in a ski chalet and they went, Oh my goodness, we're after one. Can you do an event in a, a week's time or something like that? I was like, yes, I can. And that was it. I was then a speaker. So you know what? Yes. Say it. It's amazing what happens. Yeah. And then a year later, someone starts paying you real money. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, on this first event, she said, well, obviously we'll pay you. And I said, you get paid to talk about yourself. Oh, my God, this is a revelation. It's like my dream world. <laughs> Sorry, does that sound a bit, you know, fickle? No, no. I mean, yeah, nothing happier. Most of the speakers that you probably know and I probably know, we probably feel the same. It's uh, to be able to share your passion with people and get rewarded for 
yeah, for, it's no it's no different to someone who who writes a book and earns money from a book, or people who stand in a pulpit and and give a sermon. It's no different to politicians standing on a dispatch box and giving. Well, we're just getting paid to share our knowledge, aren't we? You are, and I think one thing that's really dawned on me as well, which I don't think I ever really grasped, was just the power of the storytelling. Um, and I think this is what you and I talked about, you know, really early doors when you said, you know, this is what's happening. I'm transitioning and I'm really, and I was like, but you've got all the same stories and that story is incredibly powerful. And I was speaking, um, it was a police event, actually, it was a diversity event uh, for the police force. And there was a wonderful lady, uh, Nell, and she was talking about her transition. And afterwards I shared my story and she just said to me, I feel so inspired by, I I failed so many different points in my career, you know, and I was very lucky to to get to do with what I did. And, and we were chatting afterwards. And then a year later, she, she sort of said to me, Mandy, you've inspired me to follow my dream. And I said, and what was that? And she said, you said to me a really poignant thing, your entire life up to now has been about your gender, about living in the wrong body. Now you've transitioned. There's almost a, a gap there now. It's like, you're there now. And I said, so what is your passion? And she said, sailing. And I was like, get, get qualified, get out there. And she sent me a picture of her as a day skipper. She said, I've done it, Mandy. And I was just like, yes, do you know what? It was, it was such a poignant moment. It was a wonderful picture of now as a day skipper sailing her boat. And and she said, and it just made me realize that now was the time to start living as who I was now that I could be my true self. Yeah, that that's, I've got a similar feeling. It was a case of, I, I often say when people ask me who, who, are, who are transitioning themselves, you know, going through the, that euphoric, scared, whatever stage it is. And I said, but the ultimate aim of transitioning is for life to be ordinary. Yeah. It just becomes life. You get up in the morning and your biggest thing is what's the weather? What it, That detects what shoes you're going to wear, the weather. Yes. And if you detect what shoes you're going to wear, it's whether you wear a skirt or a pair of trousers or whether you're going to wear a coat. So the weather becomes a key factor. And then where am I going today? Am I walking across London? Right, I need to wear shoes. I can walk across London. So yes. life dictates <laughs> the stuff that you get on with, not yeah. this confusion in your head or the stuff that's going on in your life. For me, it was hearing one voice in my head. It was like being a completely... All the parts of me were just aligned to one voice. That was when I woke up one day and went, wow, it's so peaceful in here. This is so kind of, that's when I knew I'd, I'd arrived at the point I needed to be, when it was just, I, I could shut my eyes and there was no noise. And I didn't have anything in my head. And that's the ultimate aim for me was finding that tranquility, that alignment, and life just became ordinary. I, I then ended up the same problems that everybody else did. Yeah. Earning a living, yeah. getting the shopping, <laughs> driving the car. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely understand that. And there must – I mean, I don't know how much help there is because surely, you know, what you're going through in your your – you know, for your mental health state at that point is just unbelievable, isn't it? Is there much help on that side as well? I think think most people who are going through would say it's inadequate. The waiting times for gender clinics are too long. Uh, There's a lack of knowledge at primary care, GP, CCG level. Um, We we kind of expect the NHS to be experts on, on people, inside and out. The reality is that NHS people are just people. They have, if they've not come across trans people or gender diverse people, then they haven't. So it's, yes, they're person-centric. Yes, they deeply care. 
but if they haven't got experience, they haven't got experience. And I think many trans people, gender diverse, non-binary people have a higher expectation of what should be available than actually is. So I'd like to see that change. Yeah, more gender support. Yeah. And it'll come. But yeah, it's, I'd say woefully inadequate in, in people who are trained and available to counsel at a a reasonable cost and a reasonable waiting time. Yeah. No, no. I I, I can only imagine that, actually, because I yeah. just think, you know, the stress that you're under, and I certainly know that talking to my friend that was living in the closet in the RAF, you know, mm. his brain was just constantly, that stress bucket was full before you've even come to work. How can you do your job on top of that? And it is very hard, isn't it? Yeah, you try and have conversations about what you did at the weekend or are you looking forward to getting married, having kids? And you, you've then got to have this entire backstory. That yeah. Everything you do has to have another story. Yeah. And you have to weave. And what have I told people? Well, it slips out or yeah, and it's, it becomes so complex. And yeah, yeah. it's uh, the other thing I, I realized was for the first I, I got to this point where I woke up one day, for the first time in my life, I have no secrets from anybody. I have an, I'm an open book. Every, my biggest secret is out. Yeah. It's no secret. There's no, I'm not hiding anything anymore. Yeah. And that's quite cathartic, liberating. And I can imagine that's been very, very well received, hasn't it, as a speaker as well for yourself, Joanne? Yeah. I, I, had, I had the advantages. I, I think that you, we you know, I took part in a Channel 4 documentary, which broadcast two years ago. So that whole process was like writing a book for me. It was basically turning myself inside out to four or five million people who watched it or whatever. So that was very powerful. And it got me used to talking about myself. And the other golden rule as a speaker is you talk from the scar, not from the wound. So you've got to be you're not talking about all the anguish you've got. You talk about you almost like narrate the history of it. Yes. So I think I healed myself. I found myself. And now I, I can talk. I can talk about my life in a narration point of view rather than being inside the problem. Yeah, which is, which is quite powerful. And, and it is what I was saying. You know, people want to hear the story. There's a lot of empathy out there, a lot of compassion. And people want to know how to do better, how they support. I mean, some of the most moving times I get is when someone who's listened to a talk will get in the chat afterwards or come up and see me afterwards and say, my son, my daughter is transitioning or, or my, my wife, partner, husband's transitioned. Or my, so they've always, there's always one person or two people in the audience, virtually everywhere I go, who's, who has a, a trans-rated story. And just to have them come up and say, thanks. Thank you, Joanne. It's been really great seeing you here, bringing acceptance, bringing visibility. So that's what motivates me sometimes is to, is to get that, just that thank you, if you like. Yeah. And I, and I think as, as well, talk, talking openly about it as you do is just fantastic, isn't it? Because I think so many other people would, I'm through it now. I just want to get on with my life. I don't want to constantly have to make that my life now. I, you know, which is in some ways what you are doing because you're constantly talking about it. Hmm. But doing so, how are we ever going to change the dialogue? You know, it is about changing culture. And the only way we do about that is having understanding, having acceptance. Um, and you know what? You can't be what you can't see. You can't, you know, you can't feel it. You can't have that emotion. And it's quite hard to be empathetic if you've never met somebody or talked to them. Um, you know, and I, I, I remember actually, I must have been about 16. And, and this is hilarious because I went, well, as my friend would say, I'll be the judge of that. But I went with my mum. So my mum was a single mum bringing up her two girls. She was six foot tall. My sister was six foot one and I was six foot. Um, 
my mum said, I'm never going to meet any men. So she joined the tall person's club. Now, I mean, I just, I can't even imagine what was going through them. Anyway, for women, you had to be over six foot to join. And for men, you had to be about, like, I don't know, seven feet or something. And we walked in and the first person I met was... Um, uh, someone that was transitioning and I had, n- I was 16 and I had never met anybody and I ended up sitting next to them at the dinner and it was, it was really enlightening because we were talking about, you know, um, just sort of falling in love, holding hands, saying goodbye to someone at a train station, you know, and all of those little things. And he said, you know, that's what I want to do. But it was the fact that, you know, I had no understanding of the concept of what you had to do to transition, you know, of, of, of living as a woman. Is it for two years or something? It was then anyway. A lot of the gender identity clinic process and name change and, and to be accepted, there was a lot of gatekeeping and two years was always, always seen as this test of test of character. If you couldn't do it for two years, you were kidding sort of thing. So that was always the mental block. And it's, it's, it that has improved a bit, but there's still a lot of gatekeeping around this two-year mentality. Yeah, and, and I remember talking to them and they, were, they found it really tough. But it was it was my first experience and I think, my goodness, it shaped how I would therefore mm. – be able to grow up and and have an acceptance and an understanding, you know, because I'd spoken to someone, I'd spent time with them. And I think that's really important. So I think what you're doing is, is essential. Yeah. And in, in the way you did your career, you were one, as you say, the second only ever female pilot of a GR4 in the front line. That was a trend setting as well. And I'm sure many pilots since have, have benefited from that and or, or other other people in, in the Air Force who are women have also benefited from that role model experience and yeah, yeah. we'll do what we do. You hope so and um, yeah. at the time you don't really think that you're being a pioneer you're just doing what you want to do <laughs> um, but it's only afterwards when you look back and you think yeah actually we were changing the dialogue. We were changing mindsets and behaviours, and and that is really, really important. Mm. Um, and especially when I get the emails that I get daily from some of the youngsters who have read my book and said, thank you. Thank you for doing what you've done because it's enabling me to do what I want to do now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's You mentioned good. your book a couple of times. Do you want to just make sure that the title, do you want to give a quick synopsis of your book yeah. for people who don't know it? Okay, happy to. Um, it, it was called, it is, it wasn't, was called it is called an officer not a gentleman it was going to be called bird's eye view but i was told that that wasn't allowed you know it wasn't probably politically correct enough um but actually it is a it's a female perspective on fast jet training um the highs the lows the emotional roller coaster of it and i think it really sits very you know, closely and hand in hand with my speech, because when I actually do my, my keynote speeches, it's not about being a woman in a man's world. Bizarrely, it's about being a fast jet pilot. Whereas this gives perhaps more of an insight into the imposter syndrome that I felt at times, some of the struggles we went through. I, you know, I lost friends on squadrons who died in aircraft crashes, you know, um, and really just giving an actual real life account of the intensity of fast jet training as well. You know, it's brutal at times. And, you know, I think just having that insight into something and, you know, it has lit, I think I've sold just coming up for 8,000 copies. Um, it went to the number one bestseller on Amazon for books and aviation. And it's sort of, um, it's been on the market almost for a year in, um, June and I've been blown away actually by 
by the comments it's received uh, globally, mm. um, which has been wonderful. I often see great comments uh, on LinkedIn where you've spoken, you've talked about your book, and yeah, I see the warmth and passion that people and the high regard people hold you. And so, no, I haven't read it yet, but I will one day, I promise. Is it? <laughs> it's on audio book. Just do it on the way. Can I get it on Audible? Can I? I narrated it myself, actually, which oh. was, again, I found that really quite emotional, actually. I was reading it and I was doing it in the studio down in um, the New Forest to a guy that had never done an audio book recording before. And uh, and we were doing it. And um, there was, I was telling quite a funny story. At one point, he just burst out laughing. He went, I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to record that bit again. Um, but again, it was a really, I enjoyed, I actually enjoyed being able to be the one that told my story for, for audio book. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to go on to Audible and find that. No, I can't wait to listen to it. It's, uh, no, I keep, I keep saying I will. I'm, I will do that. Um, Brilliant. Thank you. I can't believe we've been talking for an hour already. Incredible. We both had a cup of tea in our hand as well, you see. So yes. it was a sort of cup of tea in the chat. <laughs> yes, it was. It was a quick coffee or a cup of tea between friends. So how can people get hold of you? you know, if they're looking for a keynote speaker, they want to find out more about you, where's the best place to find you? To be honest, I'm everywhere. Someone said, oh, my goodness, Mandy, you like a bad smell at the moment. So I'm, I'm all over with different social media. So if you just look up Mandy Hickson, um, I'm, I've got my own YouTube channel. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and I'm on either as Mandy Hickson or Mandy Hickson Speaker. And my website's Hickson LTD, so HicksonLimited.com. And that's got all the information that you could possibly want about me. And it has. I checked it out just before we started recording, and yes, it's definitely there. So fantastic. Well, thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in and listening, uh, for making it this far and getting to the end. If you've got any friends or colleagues, please share the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And, of course, if you'd like to be a guest, if you'd like to inspire the audience, then please do get in contact. And if you've got any suggestions on how we can improve, I'd also love to hear from you to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. Finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.